Hello, welcome to Diversity in Research. My name is Lachlan Smith. And I am Jakob Heldfoss Christensen. And today we are furious, absolutely furious, aren't we, Lachlan? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I should take myself off mute. <laughs> yes, Jakob, we are. Uh, We're furious. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason we are furious is the um, whole uh, spat in the UK about the uh, uh, ref and the changes that uh, UKRI has announced regarding research culture in uh, uh, in the next REF, REF 2028. And yeah, as I said, that had caused, uh, caused quite uh, a bit of fuss. And uh, we decided that uh, we would um, do a bit of an episode about uh, this and talk about why everybody should care and that this is not just a UK and a um, ref uh, thing. But before we move into uh, all of that, uh, Lachlan, could you perhaps just explain uh, all the non-UK research policy uh, geeks out there what ref is and why ref 2028 um, has caused such a uh, first. Sure. So in the simplest terms, REF is a way of uh, benchmarking UK universities against each other in terms of their principally research. Um, it's REF, as the name um, suggests, Research Excellence Framework, uh, is a, it's been around since what, 2014, I think was the first REF, uh, and it's evolved slightly each time and built on the research uh assessment exercise previous to that it's a huge exercise undertaken by universities where they evidence uh their research the research they've been undertaking and they evidence the impact that the research uh has had an impact was was introduced more recently the idea behind uh research culture is that it builds on what used to be called research environment in the previous ref. So in research environment, universities had to talk about, as the name suggests, the environment in which their research happens. So some of that uh, could be what we might now describe as research culture, but it could also be things like the the actual physical environment in which um, people did their research. But with the Recent reports coming out over the last couple of years from organisations like the Wellcome Trust, which have suggested that uh, UK research culture is pretty toxic, and that probably extends to other parts of the world as well. UKRI, in their wisdom, have decided that for the next REF in 2028, uh, there's going to be a greater emphasis on research culture and for universities to explain uh, what their research culture is like um, and what they're doing well. And that will account for around about 25% of their total mark. The other really important quick thing to note is that the REF exercise is really critical for UK universities to get research funding. It's not the only way they get research funding, but they do get a large chunk of funding based on their REF results and where they rank uh, in the overall um, REF table, in, in effect. So 
that's a very quick snapshot of what it is. The next one's coming up in 2028. There's been these changes about research culture, and a couple of people have got a little bit upset about that and are starting to query about whether that's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think the reason why this is important for everybody else, I think, is because it does set some standards or uh, at least about how we talk about uh, research. I think by 2014 and uh, particularly by 2020 uh, uh, and by 2021, but in 14, one of the big changes was the focus on impact and how yes. to measure it and the case studies, et cetera, et cetera. And that has definitely impacted how we talk about uh, impact in particularly continental Europe, but also in a wider perspective uh, globally. So that's that's why we think this is uh, one of the reasons we think this is important. That once this is happening, it will uh, spread. When this was announced, that was not necessarily welcomed by uh, universities. I think is a is a very polite way of of putting it. <laughs> Um, it was followed by two blog posts uh, by uh, one right in uh, after this was announced and one later, and we'll get back to that, uh, written by Stephen Curry, uh, uh, James Wilson, and a friend of the pod, uh, Liz Gad, um, about some of these challenges with uh, these things. At the same time, we should say that UKRI uh, put out a tender for consultants to develop metrics around this in and they made it quite clear that it should be in a very co-creational way it should be done including the entire sector in 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 different uh, uh, ways so it's not like some bureaucrats somewhere hidden in a basement in UKRI UKRI was going to sit down and create these um, some some metrics around this trying to do so as open and positive uh, and as inclusive as possible and that was when we saw uh, the uh, russell group's response being mentioned in a research professional and can you perhaps just explain non uk listeners who what the russell group is and what uh, what the main key points of uh, their response was Sure. So the Russell Group um, has been around for well since the sort of nineteen nineties, and essentially the Russell Group is a a lobbying um, organisation. It's a representative organisation of the of twenty four of the you know effectively the most exclusive universities uh, in the UK. So they're they're universities that people around the world will likely have heard of, like Oxford and Cambridge and Warwick and and people like that. Um, so they're big hitters, effectively, you know, and, and, and as an organization, the Russell Group has um, a lot of sway and can get themselves in front of government ministers, in front of UKRI policymakers and, and the like. So they're a strong representative body of some of the, the biggest universities and, and the most research intensive universities here in the UK. In terms of their response, um, and as you've you've said, you know this is a response that was uh, that they submitted to UKRI about the change um, and the potential change uh, coming up in Rev twenty twenty eight, where they expressed some concerns about, uh, I guess, how effective 
um, this kind of change might be. They they express some concerns about whether uh, research culture can be measured or how it how it could be measured um, and what that might mean for institutions and for researchers. You know, they uh, you know in in a sense rightly pointed out that if you create uh, metrics or measures for research culture, like we do with anything. Um, it could lead to unintended consequences or push uh, universities or researchers down particular uh, particular roads um, to, to try and achieve research culture, like like what happened when research impact came in and, and, and the like. So they expressed a, a concern around there that, um, you know, perhaps this wouldn't be the most equitable way of, of, of doing things. And they also, the last point, uh, worth making is that they suggested, and I have a little bit of sympathy with her, that maybe, you know, whatever metrics are developed as, as part of this um, tender that, that you referred to, Jakob, uh, perhaps they could be piloted first to see how they work. And, and maybe, you know, maybe that is an option that, that should be explored. But I think their, their argument is essentially and I'm reading into it a little bit here, but it's essentially, you know, things are working pretty well from their perspective right now. If they have to go and do some other stuff, which might enhance the quality of their working life of their researchers, well, actually, that's a bit of a pain in the ass, and they don't really necessarily want to do that because they might get found out, in effect. I think there's my hunch, you know, because we've never... Uh, measured research culture before and in fact we don't even know what it is yet really arguably um but my hunch is is that whatever it looked like that some of the competitors of russell group universities might actually do a little bit better than the russell group themselves when it comes to research culture and i think i think they're a bit concerned about that let's put it that way and then to just finish off the whole uh, uk situation then of course came a whole discussion about uh, the uh, EDI group under UKRI uh, for different political reasons, and now that uh, has been dissolved by UKRI, and which of course yeah. only confirmed minority researchers that uh, something was going on here, and uh, something what's going to happen that wasn't necessarily good when it comes to, to EDI. Because if we should go yeah. into a bit of the discussions about why we think, uh, think this is, in, uh, is important, is that, as you mentioned earlier, the term research culture is traveling. We're hearing it around Europe now. In, in different yeah. settings. And what is really interesting if you, when you go into these discussions, no matter where you are, and even if you're discussing it within a, in a UK uh, uh, frame, n there's no clear definition of it. We're discussing all no. sorts of things when we're discussing research uh, culture. People can, some universities can la launch great projects about research culture. And when you look into it, all they're talking about is open science. And not that open science is a bad thing, quite the contrary. But the reason we really wanted to do this is that our main concern, I think, uh, uh, speaking on, on both of our behalf, is that when we have a, broad, a frame as broad as research culture, what happens to EDI? Are we, will we be 
developing, if we keep this broad and have no accountability in this, are we letting universities uh, get away with murder? Um, which they already are in many ways when it comes to minorities. They haven't been good at that. Uh, at dealing with that, uh, that agenda as it is. And uh, now suddenly when facing accountability in the field, uh, surprise, surprise, they are not happy. Um, and they rarely are, while at the same time, they are not afraid. The leaderships in these universities are not afraid to hold their researchers accountable through bibliometrics and the amount of money they attract through uh, grants. So it's not like they are against using indicators that or, and in, or metrics that has been proven not to be very good at showing what we think they do. But when it comes, yeah, and then again, when it comes to themselves, that's not, they, they are certainly uh, uh, very worried about what this is, uh, is going to do uh, with them. And it is not a... Uh, a a a pretty uh, picture, and we asked. We should perhaps just say also we asked on LinkedIn if anybody had questions or topics to be covered. And one of the uh, comments we had was to this distinction between the internal research culture and external research culture, where the uh, person uh, Anne mentioned that um, that. What would be qualitative? What would be uh, quantitative? And uh, would we? And her uh, concern, I think, was um, whether we would, what we would be, uh, what we would be uh, looking at. And I think she's absolutely right in in that uh, sense. And I think that's a very good distinction to make. And my main concern here is exactly that everybody will be looking at the external uh, research culture. And that is why EDI is going to be forgotten. And then after you can have these broad metrics, uh, perhaps, and then suddenly after 10 years, you can go to them and say, they can, a university can come out and say, oh, we have done so much great work for um, research culture. The research culture at our university has improved significantly. And then you said, you can say, but you didn't do anything about EDI. And then, no, 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 but we did a lot for research culture. So that is one of the reasons I think where that we would suggest these indicators. We are, and we wanted to do this and talk about what these indicators to look like because accountability is important definition of research culture is important and it's important to have indicators looking at everything. So when we go into EDI today and talking about that, it's not because we don't think the other aspects of research culture um, aren't important. They are incredibly important, but a lot of people are going to have opinions about that. I, our concern is that EDI will be forgotten Yet again, um, yeah. It's it's. Could you give us some of the arguments? Oh. You have touched a bit upon this. Yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, I think the the point that Anne raised around internal and external uh, research cultures is is interesting, and and your reflection that 
you know, perhaps universities might focus on the external or people within the sector might focus on the external is, is also interesting. Cause mm-hmm. when I, I think when I first heard research culture, um, as a concept kind of thing, I, I think I saw it as a very internal thing and I didn't really mm-hmm. think so much about the external. Um, but there are, no. there are things in the external which could be of interest and they'll, they'll they'll impact on each other the internal will impact on the external and and, and vice versa but i think sure. it raises a, an interesting point and perhaps universities might find it easier i think there is an argument that they might find it easier to talk about the external and looking at their external research partnerships maybe how they work with the global south and they might find it easier to create a picture that looks positive there when compared to um uh, internal, I think on the internal stuff is where a lot of the EDI questions that that you were just talking about really come into play. Because how is it that how are your minority staff members um, impacted by your research culture? Are you managing a to recruit them? But as we've said, you know, recruiting them is one thing, but will they actually stay? Are there opportunities for people to develop their careers? Are they being involved in research projects, which are actually looking at research in the whole instead of, uh, you know, middle-aged white men, you know, looking at research on behalf of, of everybody else. So there's lots of really, really interesting questions there, but I know I interrupted you. You're going to ask me um, something else. So far away. <laughs> no, no, yeah. No, it's just sort of going to, because you had touched upon this a bit earlier, but that perhaps we should give some of the arguments that are, we have both pro and uh, against indicators in in this uh, field. Could you just because there's also something you work quite a lot with uh, more broadly um, with Clown Chamber uh, and the work you do there. So so in in what what would your what your arguments be for and against indicators in in this context? Yeah, so you, you're absolutely right, and and one thing. You know, as I alluded to earlier, that I have some sympathy with the response from the Russell Group is that indicators will drive behavior. And, and we know that, you know, it's not just an HE thing. It's, it's everywhere in, in whatever environment you are operating. If you have key performance indicators or you have other kinds of measurement indicators, they will drive behavior. And sometimes those behaviors, uh, can be unintended. Like we, we, you may not have, we may not have understood that by asking people to measure X, that Y might, might happen. You know, we go, go with the best intentions. And, and I guess, you know, an example of that could be something around the, uh, collection of sexuality data. If, if you think about that in a UK context or in any context, actually, mm. like if you're asking people to yeah. tell mm-hmm. you whether they were gay, lesbian, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, that could be a positive thing because it could help you to um, develop services or to ensure that uh, the needs of that community are met because you might see they're in uh, particular departments if you're talking about a university or it might be that they live in particular geographic locations and, and things like that. So that all sounds uh, really good. But you may also end up um, potentially outing uh, people if there's very small numbers within um different communities or within different departments, you might find that some departmental heads are assholes, believe it or not, one or two of them are, um, and they might actively start discriminating. <laughs> they might actively start discriminating um, against people or using that information uh, to 
uh, you know, make sure they have no more LGBTQ people come and uh, join their department, whatever it might be. And on a societal scale, you know, if governments get hold of things, um, who, who knows how that, who knows how that sort of data could be used. So, you know, we know there are unintended consequences and they, and they do, and they do exist. Just, and they, in a, yeah. I'll just a, a quick parenthesis here to to just say that if people want a more elaborate discussion on on that topic, on particular on 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 the on this type of d- data, they should go back and listen to our conversation with Kevin Guyan and his book Queer Data about some of the uh, challenges about this um, this type of data. Sorry. No, that's fine. I mean, and I guess the flip side of the argument against. Um, the indicators is not surprisingly you, you you want indicators to drive behavior so if you know the reality is in higher education as we've learned over the last few years if you don't provide a bit of carrot and stick and and make universities do things they don't do things even if those things are arguably for you know, the greater good or the good of their own staff or their own students. Um, so one of the reasons for having some indicators is to potentially drive behavior to ensure that uh, the universities are actively trying to look after their staff or improve retention, um, create more promotion opportunities, what, what, whatever it might be, um, create more inclusive research environments. So that's essentially the argument for, and if you don't, if you don't, um, introduce some uh, some indicators, then all we're really going to be doing is reinforcing the status quo. And we know there are problems with research culture, and we know that the status quo is unsustainable. Mm -hmm. Or at least I think everybody knows that. Maybe not everybody agrees with that. Maybe there are people out there who are quite happy with the status quo. But I think most people would see that this isn't sustainable and we need to do better. Yeah, um, and they probably know they need to do that better, and this is exactly why they don't want these um, these indicators. Yeah. I, I, my assumption is that quite a few of these people uh, are in quite high leadership positions at Russell Group universities. Um, yeah. Anyway, let's try and move into a more specific discussion about what sort of indicators we would actually um consider because often when we're talking when we are out doing consulting work or workshops at universities the first question or comment we almost always get is well but we the first step is we need more data and as you as you just said about the queer data there can be all sorts of good reasons for it but also a lot of bad reasons and my first question is always so you do you need uh, five, seven, or twelve gay guys in order to do make initiatives <laughs> for LGBTQ plus uh, employees, and and which of course just shows how ridiculous some of these ideas about indicators and numbers uh, can can be. So this is just to make it clear: we're not we're not in favor of a name ne- uh, of a numbers game as. Uh, how many do we have? Do we have of these or, or that? Of course, there is a question of representation. Does the university uh, reflect the uh, how the surrounding society is is made of of different uh, groups? But we will never have a one to one representation. That's not what we will be arguing here. Um, just to, to to make that that uh, clear and saying that's not will never be the the um, necessarily be a, an indicator of a good. Um, uh, research culture. 
we mm-hmm. uh, an example we always use and I, that we have discussed here that could probably be quite an interesting way of um measuring the uh, research culture is to look um at the uh, article called The Intersectional Privilege of White Able-Bodied Heterosexual Men in STEM by Erin A. Kesh, I think it's pronounced, um, an article she uh, uh, published in 2022. It's open access, so we will link to it uh, in the um, show notes. And what she did is that she um, took a a bunch of uh, employees and made a, a, a survey with them and um, looking at race, ability, sexual orientation, and gender. And so what she talks about is Wham, and I have promised not to make any uh, George Michael jokes, um, but Wham is white, able-bodied, heterosexual men. Um, that are, And that is, of course, the dominant group in academia, uh, and particularly if we go into leadership. So what she's been, she uh, looked at is what this Waham status does uh, on a number of um, intersectional, uh, uh, for these intersections, uh, or what it does to some specific parameters that I'll get into in just a second. And then based on that, she uh, made all these intersectional groups, uh, 31 of them exactly, co- with different combinations of, uh, again, um, race, uh, ability, uh, sexual orientation, and uh, gender. And what is the, f- the interesting questions she, uh, she asked and and looked at it was uh, first of all uh, the feeling of social inclusion, whether a group had experienced harassment, their impression of receiving professional respect from their peers, the uh, salary level, how they saw their career opportunities, and what she calls persistence intentions. So, do you think that you are going? To uh, stay um, in this um, in this uh, game, and again, this was done in the U.S. and in STEM. So, in that sense, it's not to compare numbers, but it's just to say these are some, I think, at least, quite clear indications of a sense of belonging for different groups. And I think that would be the important thing to measure when it comes to EGI and. Um, and research culture. Have we created a culture where people, no matter what background they have and how these backgrounds are combined, because you can never reduce people to just one thing. That's always a main point in what we do. No matter what, have we created this sense of belonging so that they feel socially inclusive, don't experience harassment, feel like they have uh, professional respect from their peers, have equal uh, salary, Seek uh, equal uh, career opportunities and uh, feel like it may it makes sense to persist in this um, area. And I think if we did that in something like Ref or in universities more broadly, and not just in the context of Ref, then we could have some really interesting um, numbers. And it would be difficult because with when we're going into 
31 different groups, at least uh, in smaller research institutions, you would be able to identify who these persons are. So in that sense, we might have to aggregate some data to some levels. I'm not saying that this is the uh, exactly only way to do to do this. There are definitely problems with that. I, I, I recognize that. But we could aggregate some data, and and what because what she shows in, in in the article is that no matter what we look at, the white able-bodied heterosexual men always come up on top, and no pun intended here. Um, and that that is that that is always the case, and it's in particularly I think was in social inclusion. Um, 81, 86, I think, percent of the uh, difference in, in, in the feeling of social inclusion can only be, ex- be explained by uh, WAHM status. She looks at other things that can explain why, why there are these discrepancies between the groups. But in that sense, we, we have created a culture where it's basically only white, able-bodied, heterosexual men that feel included and feel like feel they belong there, and I think that's that. I think those could be really, really interesting indicators about research culture. And for that reason alone, I think no universities would agree to do this because they know exactly what it's what it is going uh, to show, and that's of course why we need them. And that's exactly why whoever is doing this work on behalf of UKRI around indicators should read that paper and and explore some of the themes within it. Because as you said, (laughs) it it might not be the perfect way of doing it, but there's some really interesting ideas um, in there which we should take seriously. Yeah. And and, and a way where we can actually a lot of these things, particularly when it comes to pay, uh, uh, etc., you we can um, hold universities accountable. But it's also a way of holding an entire university accountable. It's not then in this way. It's not just a question of leadership. It's also a question of being a good colleague. And by, uh, yes. by in this way. By de- being a dick, it will have consequences for the, the entire university and not the, just the person you're being a dick to, to. What a wonderful way to put it. What a, what a wonderful sentiment. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, but, but I, th- I think it is, it, I think that it becomes a collective responsibility uh, then. So, so it's not because what we're not, we're not trying to say that we should do something that would, um, Reveal leadership to be horrible because this is an, uh, an no. a, a shared responsibility, and I think these indicators could, could do move into that. Um, another thing we should perhaps just because another comment we had on LinkedIn was from uh, Mayan at uh, uh, who's part of uh, the iNorms uh, Research Evaluation Group, as is uh, Lissy Gad. We talked about uh, earlier. And she mentioned the More Than Our Rank um, initiative and where they have, um, where institutions can write a narrative about what they value and what they are proud of. And that could be a perhaps a good 
way to balance this out because the moment, as you said, indicators drive behavior. And this could, of course, make us focus on some specific uh, things and make research institutions focus on specific things. By adding this, and there are, we will link to this and the examples uh, that Mayanas has, has uh, sent us. You can actually say, give us some, uh, tell us about some other initiatives you might has, have that is not covered by this. Um, and they have uh, there um, in those examples, some examples of cultural uh, or uh, initiatives and research culture that universities are, are proud of. And that could be a, a good way of also moving things ahead by inspiring each other. Yeah, I think the thing I like about them is that they are a bit more, not exclusively, but they can be a bit more outward facing. So they can be quite a nice demonstration of how a university is engaging in their local community or with, you know, it might be a particular faith group. I know in some of the examples, uh, there were, uh, stories of how universities engaged with indigenous communities and and opened opportunities up to indigenous communities to get higher education. And I know of some of the universities I've worked with here in the UK who, frankly, you know, they're small universities, but frankly, they've been a damn sight better at engaging with local faith groups and people in from disadvantaged backgrounds than any of the Russell Group universities have been, frankly. Um, and that's not to say there aren't good pockets of uh, practice at Russell Group universities because there are, but some of the smaller universities actually understand better that they need to engage with their local communities. And that in turn can have a really positive impact on the culture within the institution and therefore research culture. So I really like the more than our rank because it goes a little bit beyond uh, numbers um, and numbers are important. But it gives a chance, as you said, for universities to reflect positively on some of the other stuff that they're doing, which makes them, you know, a good local citizen, a good place to work, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Before we finish this up, could you perhaps just, ask, with some of the work that you've done with charities and funders uh, through Cloud Chamber, would there be other, would there be other suggestions you, you, you would have other than the ones we've contained? had from this article or, or things you would take into consideration when, when developing this that we haven't touched upon on already? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's, there's just a couple of points I'd, I'd make. Um, and it's it's difficult without having defined exactly what research culture is to, to suggest specific indicators. But two things I would mention is, one, it's kind of surprised me that there's not really a nationwide staff survey here in the UK of people working at higher education research institutions. So we do have nationwide surveys of students um, and postgraduate students. So you can benchmark against uh, different institutions on the satisfaction levels, but there's nothing for staff. And I think that's something that UKRI or um the government, whoever, you know, might want to consider as an option. Now, obviously, there needs to be questions crafted within that to help um, build that picture of what, like, say, staff satisfaction, retention. Again, some of the points that you were making earlier from the, the WAM um, study actually were, would be included, but it could go beyond that and, and enable people to actually put in examples of um, 
what's gone well and some and some narrative examples and things like that. So that's one thing I'd throw in there. But the other the other more general point. And what we always try and do when we're working with um, charities around impact frameworks and around evaluation of uh, services, provision, whatever it might be, is to ensure that you can uh, triangulate the data as much as possible. So you want to try and find three, at least three different ways of measuring the same thing. So you can get different perspectives and see if they match up against each other. So if you only did a staff survey, then that might be great and it might give you a a really lovely rich data set and a picture. But actually, if you then did some focus groups as well with particular staff, you might get under the skin of some of that data a bit more and really find out, is, is that consistent, what came out in the staff survey, or is there something else going on here? Or is there another data set that you can pull on, which might be about HR retention data or something like that within a, within a university? Um, you know, does that also mirror what people are saying in a, in a staff survey? So it's just trying to look at different ways of um, capturing informations, be they qualitative or quantitative. And we'd always suggest a mix of both because um, that just enriches your data set. And if you can do that, then there's, there's more chance that whatever picture is emerging, you can get a sense of whether that is actually a consistent picture and a consistent story, or is it uh, a total outlier that um, in the focus group something came up because that's not come up through any other data collection method or something like that. So I hope the people who are looking at the data, and I'm sure they will be, because I know the sort of sort of organizations who are involved in, in looking at indicators will be thinking about um, those sorts of things. Having said that, I know UKRI are going to turn around and say, oh, we want this to be as light touch as possible and things like that. And as soon as you start making things light touch, then you start to break down that triangulation and there's a risk that the data you get may or may not be as consistent as you'd like. So it'll be interesting to see how that actually does pan out. But I hope they put some investment into it for the sake of the minorities working within institutions and for people who want to work in places with good research cultures. Exactly. Because, uh, and and this is perhaps a, a, a good segue into, I mean, the main reason why why we decided to, to do this, because it easily becomes a, a question about uh, money and all these sorts of, of things, and it is important in the context of, of REF, of, of course it is. But I think what the, the universities and Brussels group in their response forget when they, when they go against this is that wider context of minorities hear this, both the employees, but also within the surrounding society hear that you honestly don't give a shit about us. And why should we care about a research community that doesn't care about us? Why should I have to work? I have to work a lot to, uh, to pay enough taxes for a Russell Group University to get the amount of money they get in, in a year. And why should I, why should I do that if they don't care about me? And if we don't get the, I just recently wrote a, a piece of, about, the use of AI in writing um, research proposals uh, as well. And it's the same conclusion. If we don't get these things right, the surrounding society is losing trust in science. We're losing society at a point where there are already problems with trust. So we can't 
I understand universities partly, at least, as we discussed earlier. But I think that they have to look at this in a broader context and what they are what they are losing with with society and minorities, and not just the minorities employed at their own um, institutions. So uh, yeah, get those uh, get those indicators in. Uh, um, in in play, and let's see how the uh, how the uh, research culture is at the different UK universities to begin with, and then let's implement it implement it more broadly and see how it uh, how how it works. Because this is of course not a a UK problem only. We the article is about no. the states, but it's not an Anglo-Saxon problem either. It's is is a global problem with uh, with academia or research institutions more broadly it is and and we know that um this topic's not going away um and for that very reason I, I i look forward to the indicators being developed and i know that we'll be talking about this again at some point in the next six to twelve months and and beyond this is not not going away yeah definitely definitely all right I already feel a lot calmer now. Uh, now I'm only slightly furious. So uh, thank you. <laughs> the therapy for, has for, worked. For the doing this and helping me <laughs> vent. And uh, <laughs> yeah, well, this is what this podcast is. This is just a therapy for us. Uh, <laughs> frustrations about diversity uh, and internationalization in, in research and research uh, yes. management. Anyway, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for. Uh, to um, uh, Anne, uh, Lizzie, Mayan, and Steve for questions and suggestions at uh, at LinkedIn. Um, it helps us uh, uh, structure this uh, structure this conversation. And um, yeah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks' uh, time with uh, yet another episode of uh, Diversity in Re- Research. See you then. Cheers. Bye-bye.